Welcome everyone to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagolani Albov. Today we're very lucky to have Anya Nugren from the University of Helsinki. She's joining us from the Development Studies Department, and we're going to have a really interesting conversation about some of the empirical work that she's done out in the field on the front lines of extractivism. So we're really looking forward to this talk because in prior episodes, you know, we've had some of those lived experiences. We've had some people who are still on the theoretical level looking at these things. We had some really great lived experiences from the alternative side, and now we're going to get to really hear about some of that frontline stuff. Welcome, Anya. Would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Yes, I'm Anya. I'm professor in development studies at the University of Helsinki. I'm anthropologist by training, and I'm also a docent of political ecology at the University of Tampere, Finland. And tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing. Well, I have done quite intensive empirical research First in Costa Rica, then in Nicaragua, then in Honduras, and now I have been working for several years in Mexico. So those are my my main uh, geographical areas where I have been working. But I also have research, quite big research projects, where we are working also in Laos, in Cambodia, and in Peru. And then in several cities in Latin America, including Villahermosa in Mexico, Guatemala City in Guatemala, Bogota in Colombia, and then also Calcutta in India. Wow, you're all over the place. So how did you get from Finland to the rest of the world? What's been your story? Well, uh, I, I had recently graduated from my master's studies. We moved for Costa Rica in 88. And then it was quite logic that it, it, uh, that it would be nice to, to start to do some kind of research in Latin America. And so I started my plans for the doctoral degree uh, and I did my dissertation on, on Costa Rica. We lived there almost for five years. And since then, I have always been so enthusiastic on Latin America that I never left left the area. <laughs> and what made that enthusiasm grow? Uh, I mean, it's such a diverse continent, like socially, politically, culturally, ecologically. There are so many issues going on, and I have always been interested in social inequality, environmental justice, social differentiation, struggles over access to resources, conflicts over resource control, and so on. So I think Latin America makes a good case for those kind of issues. Oh, definitely. And most recently, you said you've been working uh, mostly in, in Mexico and Nicaragua? Mm -hmm. Yes. And what, what sorts of things have you been focusing on there? Well, in Nicaragua, I was working there already in 95, 96, and 97. I did ethnographic research there on environmental conflicts related to resource frontier. And I have returned there several times thereafter, so that it, it results that now I have the panel data from 97, 2007, and 2017. Concerning the forest loss, like deforestation rates, uh, land use changes, livelihood changes, and people's vulnerable lives. 
And I have both the, the macro scale data based on satellite images and my ethnographic data so that I have followed certain households during these more than 20 years, trying to understand what has happened in their lives and what has happened to their livelihoods and how, uh, what kind of vulnerabilities they have in, the, in their lives. This project relates also to extractivism because on that kind of frontier, there is all kind of extraction going on and all kind of uh, resource grabbing. <laughs> Concerning Mexico, I have carried out research on two issues. The first one is urban flood risks and vulnerabilities, which might not be so interesting here. But another one is oil extraction. With one of my PhD candidates who already graduated, uh, her name is Lina Maya Quist. We have studied uh, oil extraction on the sea, and uh, and she she has been focusing on conflicts over resource space between fishers and oil industry. And me, I have carried out uh, research on on the part of oil industry. And I also have data which I haven't yet published, but on the long-term extraction activities on land with all kind of problems of water contamination, social dispossession, uh, environmental justice, and so on. So what does extraction or extractivism, what does that mean for you and in your research? Like, how do you look at that? Well, um, we can define extractivism very, very uh, strictly or open it more, like for more broader definition. And I, I think in our case, in our discipline, we are more interested in, in looking for different dimensions of extractivism. So uh, in my case, what I have been doing is to understand uh, oil and natural gas extraction in Mexico and in the case of Nicaragua, I consider that extractivism can also be considered like those kind of, not just like gold mining, which, which is going on there or explore, exploration of gold mining, but also like spreading of oil palm plantations and fast growing trees, tree plantations and so on. There is also in, in Nicaragua, there is also a very big protected area called Indio Mais in the area where I'm, I'm carrying out research. It's the biggest protected area in whole Mesoamerica. And sometimes we also consider that extractivism also includes those kind of like red plus and green, green grabbing activities and also maybe like so-called mental kind of extractivism with which uh, relates, for example, for a certain kind of ecotourism adventures where people like hunt or kind of extreme experiences. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. One of my um, interests is also kind of that mental or intellectual extractivism. In the case of Nicaragua, with that protected area is also that there is huge battle of, of local knowledge related to medicinal plants. And there are pharmacological companies which are interested in that kind of knowledge. Not in the sense that they would start to, to extract medicinal plants as such. That's no, no more possible. You, they would need so much that it's not, uh, it's not possible from the protected area, but they are interested in the genetic information, uh, like to, to develop certain kind of 
synthetic or genetical, genetically modified uh, medicines from that information. And, and for that reason, there is also this kind of battle of, like, you can call it a little bit like mental extractivism. <laughs> Definitely. This idea of, like, trying to take that local knowledge mm-hmm. and then, like, you know, basically take the most useful stuff, find a way to splice it into something else where you can grow it in a greenhouse and then just say, all right, yep. cool, thanks. What are you going to get for this? Oh, you get a... Good hearty pat on the back and yes. <laughs> thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. And also, I know that in the case that they have been discussing about royalties, there are, there are huge uh, problems how to define who 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 gains the royalties. Because the indigenous people, for example, they say that knowledge does not have an, a private owner. But who can own the knowledge? I mean... It, they might have used those kind of practices in different parts of the world. So who, as an individual, can claim? I, according to indigenous people, you, the whole idea of knowledge is uh, disturbed if you start to speak about individuals as owning something. Well, that's about as um, diametrically opposed as kind of this Western view is, what with all the intellectual property. I mean, we're basically in the era of intellectual property and really finally making sure like, ooh, you used that clip of that song that I did. You have to pay me five cents every time we play it and so mm. on and so forth. So I think that it's really um, a different approach. Yeah. Which I, I do not deny that there wouldn't be like injustices in the case of uh, like extracting the, the indigenous or local knowledge and just using it for for own purposes and profit making and so on. So it's a huge problem. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's a well, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing to see too in the past when we look at some of the the great advances in medicine and how some scientists said, you know, refused to sell the patents. And um, I'm trying to think of, uh, what was it? Was it the polio vaccine that was, uh, that the person who created that said, like, refused to patent it so that it could be given out around the world as inexpensively as possible? But with this, there are ways, though, that this could turn around and come back in a good way. So how do these laws work, I mean, around this? Because this is something that I'm very curious about. So how can a, a company, like, I mean, I'm presuming it's companies, I mean, I don't know, it could be governments. Mm. Um, so how can people come in, then take this knowledge? And I mean, there's, there must be some sort of mechanism for at least sharing some of it with the indigenous people, even if they said like, well, you know, we want it to be widely available. We want it to be affordable. But of course, we can also use some of this too. Mm-hmm. Is there any like mechanisms? Yeah. I know some pharmacological companies, they have made agreements with them. Um, uh, mostly with like governmental institutes and through that institute they might try to pay some royalties but it goes through so many different scales that you never know how much the local people will ever get advantages of it it's also a very very long process to develop some kind of medicine from that kind of knowledge so who knows if if they even even remember who was yeah. who were the persons or people who were the, the the so-called owners of the knowledge. You know, it's true. Medicine is one of those things that sometimes I know that I definitely forget. You know that it doesn't just appear in a pill form. You know, it comes from knowledges in nature, and that there's like a whole story behind just every single thing that we encounter in this world. And I mean, I know that in my own life, as much as I'd like to think that I'm aware, I know that there's a lot of things that I end up kind of taking for granted. Mm-hmm. 
and forgetting mm. that whole backstory, if you will. Yeah. With the work that you've done, mm-hmm. like your ethnographic field work, mm-hmm. um, are you getting some of those like really good lived experience and backstories, uh, not just of the extractivism, but how people are living under these advancing commodity frontiers? Yes, I, I have done ethnographic research there for months, like living there. Um, uh, and there is not so much to do in the evenings. There is no electricity. There is uh, no way to go for stores or, or shopping centers. Or <laughs> you. so, I have ha- I have had quite intensive times with people trying to understand their life histories and what has happened to them. And it's an extremely violent frontier. Uh, people have very traumatic experiences, and uh, it was also. In 95, 96, when I was there, you know that Nicaragua had recently gone through the civil war. So this area was one of the most serious battle zones during the civil war. So uh, people were somehow, they wanted to tell their stories because uh, they couldn't speak of them so much with their neighbors. Uh, because they they knew exactly who was who whom of the neighbors was who killed their son or their daughter or and everybody had the same kind of traumatic experiences so uh, why would you listen to your neighbor if you have the same kind of uh, problem so uh, me being there and just listening their stories i think they 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 found it somehow painful but at the same time like something that that they really wanted to tell about maybe like a cathartic experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and still it continues to be very violent there is no civil war anymore but resource grabbing and uh, social dispossession land con- conflicts they are very serious stuff there <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned a term, green grabbing. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yes. Uh, when they established this uh, big uh, protected area, it's a biological reserve called Indiomice. And there was quite a, quite a polemic because it biological reserve belongs to the m- most strict category of protection. So you cannot do almost anything in, in a in a biological reserve. And so people were saying that as as we are like suffering from hunger, how can they just think about protecting non-human species and so on? Uh, thereafter, the situation has changed very radically. I was working mostly in the buffer zone area of that protected area. If you know what is buffer zone. It's like a zone which is planned to be like an intermediary zone from agricultural area to protected area. And there were huge uh, development projects funded by different European uh, countries, by United States, Canada, to promote sustainable livelihoods in that buffer zone. So they were protecting, uh, they were promoting agroforestry systems, fair trade cacao production, and small scale like community forestry. That was in 97, 96. Uh, but after those projects went off, 
Then there started the expansion of oil palm plantations. Almost all the forest in that buffer zone had already been cut down uh, in the early 2000s. So it does not mean that the oil palm plantations would deforest like a, uh, like a big rainforest. But what they are doing is that they are pressuring the smallholders to sell cheaply their land. And many smallholders, they do not have a, like a very official land title, so the price is extremely low. And so those smallholders, they are selling those lands and then... What they are doing, they search for living somewhere. And so they go within the protected area to cut down forests there. But it would be too simple to say. I think it's so common to, to blame the smallholders for, for cutting down the forest. But if you really want to understand the dynamics behind those smallholders, there are powerful cattle raisers. Uh, and there are, there are many powerful people who are involved in land speculation. So they are just like asking the smallholders to do the dirty work and, and, and thereafter they go behind them. So nowadays, almost like 40% even of the protected areas forests have gone. Wow. Oof. That's, that sounds like a big percent. So what do you think like, this is kind of a simple question for what I know is not going to be simple. But what's what's the answer? Is there an answer? Well, uh, for example, that kind of um, cacao production, which they were promoting, it, it went quite well. And they got markets for selling it, selling the chocolate. Uh, they have quite... Uh, the chocolate produced in the area has been has won many kind of awards, even internationally. It's very good fine chocolate, uh, fine cacao that can be used for gourmet chocolate. And they had markets for European gourmet markets, but then you know the the changes of politics, and it can destroy even the good initiatives. I know that this chocolate production it was just a very small part of of the livelihoods of, of smallholders and, and not everyone can can do it. It, it has also, eco, it's ecologically also quite sensitive kind of production system, which easily gets problems of pests and fungi. But it was really something and you could, you could see that people were very enthusiastic and so on. But uh, then somehow I, I might sound a little bit pessimistic, but every time there is a new invention of sustainability for smallholders, then the big big players come and they appropriate the, the initiative. Yeah, I mean, that is such a big thing. Well, I mean, not, not just the, the appropriation, but the not following through. Yes. Because I've, I've heard, actually, I've heard some very similar stories in the impact of palm oil farming in like West Africa, in, um, in like Southeast Asia. And actually, when you were talking about the dynamic of the people who live near the protected area and then getting kind of forced out or not having necessarily completely formalized legal ownership, yeah, I've heard this exact same dynamic out of West Africa with suddenly people selling it or somebody sells the land and then a company gets there and finds out mm -hmm. like, oh, wait, it wasn't actually their land to sell. There are people mm -hmm. living here. Mm -hmm. And then those people get forced out. 
And, um, you know, they're, they're even with a similar thing of like some, some success in like cacao production, but just that lack of sustainability because the project ends, the governments that are funding it don't bother following up. And then like some sort of multinational comes in and is like, well, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's us or nothing. And we could really, uh, there's a palm oil boom going on. So, uh, there you go. And they end up going into the, uh, into the protected areas okay. as well. So it's it's very interesting that this dynamic seems to be such a global phenomenon. I think based on my empirical observations, based on my based on my empirical research experience and based on my theoretical thinking, the theoretical approaches I'm following, I just cannot see the alternative to be in 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 such like so simple that we have to resist against certain kind of global monolith where there could be like global versus local. Uh, I consider that we have to think about the politics like at different levels and, and the cross-scale politics and also the alternatives. I think the best initiatives are those where you try to link through different kind of uh, trans-local uh, movements and, and, and try to find out alliances at different scales and also to have changes, for example, in global production consumption networks instead of just working with the local people and try to do like a very local scale change. Because I, I think we are all involved in these problems. There is no... No possibility to say that this does not uh, uh, that I'm I, I'm not guilty of these problems. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that kind of referring back to what I was saying earlier about the medicine, you know, it's like it's easy to feel distant when you're just living your life. Well, I'm living my life here in Helsinki, and you know, like like especially with like the palm oil, for example. Like I'm I'm ashamed to admit this, but uh, yesterday I had chocolate hazelnut spread with my breakfast. That probably wasn't good. There's palm oil in that. Um, but it's uh, easy to forget kind of like these larger things that are happening by just some of our everyday actions. You know, it's I think that sometimes there's the assumption that like, oh, well, you know, it's in the grocery store. So somebody's thought about it. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what point in the, I really like your, your, um, thought of what point in that chain should this actually, where's the responsibility? Yes. And I think that it can't always just be at the very local scale. And at the same time, I think that it, you can't really demonize the consumer either. Yes. Somewhere, somewhere else. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I mean, in many of those, um, uh, certification schemes and and approaches for sustainable pro- sustainability and so on uh, the focus is on the production side and this means that we are like making those for example those smallholders who try to get their small their coffee or cacao for for markets they have to do everything that is responsible but then we are not looking at what happens in the processing what are the workers rights 
and 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 who gets the most of the profit so we should take the into account the processing retailing and wholesaling and so on and i also agree that of course consumers are important and they they have a certain kind of power but i think it, you we cannot put all the responsibility on the on the shoulders of consumers either uh, there is a big responsibility that the governments have to take the companies have to take and so on yeah, I think it's really interesting how in these conversations about this, like, it feels like sometimes all that onus gets placed on both ends. And I think that part of that might just be like the lack of understanding that, you know, the day to day person has about what it actually means for products to go from being grown to being purchased in the supermarket. You know, we forget or not forget, but maybe just never knew about all those intermediaries that are actually part of this process. Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's uh, not funny, funny, haha, but funny, like weird and ironic, maybe that, you know, it's like the points of focus are on the producers at this end and then what we're consuming at this end. And then the entire middle is just exactly. forgotten. I think overall, like that idea of the the sort of detachment that human beings have today from where our food comes from and stuff like that is a very real and and it's not visceral. Um, we we don't appreciate it, and I think a uh, it's an interesting thing too because uh, you know food has never been so cheap in human history ever. Like mm-hmm. I remember, if you look back to say a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago, you could say like you know people were spending sixty plus percent of their say income on time yeah time on simply eating like, on simply having enough food to survive mm. and now like we're at a point where you know you can go to mcdonald's you got the the euro menu mm. dollar menu get some chicken mm. nuggets and it's uh, and people don't think about like the 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 process that goes in between because mm. you know, it's just this mm. finely packaged product but what I think is happening in the world is that in all the products, there is a, like more and more coming like double markets with food, with textiles like garment, clothes that we buy, uh, with um, houses that we construct, everything. Like you can get very cheap ones, which does not uh, last for, for a very long time. And then... There are, there is a, an other kind of very luxurious market for those who are very sensitive consumers and who want to hunt for sustainability issues and so on. You can see it, for example, with clothes very, very uh, strongly. And I'm, I'm worried about this, that how much in, we can see inequality in the markets nowadays too. Yeah. You know, my um, husband's father always used to say, I don't make enough money to buy cheap things. Um, and I think that that's really interesting because you made the point of like, you can get those really, really cheap things, but they don't necessarily last. Yeah. And there is such an inequality in the market yeah. these days. It's, it's true. It really is a dual market. But at the same time, there are some companies which say that it's a very good business to buy to to sell cheap products for for the poor. <laughs> oh, we often think that it's it's not that that good business, but uh, uh, 
if you sell quantities for products that do not last for for a long time, there is a quite a huge demand. Mm. It's like a treadmill. Mm. Like, how do we get off that? But at the same time, is if the only place to step off that is into kind of this other market where it's, you know, very much driven maybe more by ideology than actual substance. Not to say that there aren't companies out there who, there are companies out there who are doing things, air quotes, right. But at the same time, you know, this once again puts a lot of pressure on the consumer mm. for having to do the research, figure it out, untangle this whole mess, if you will. Yeah. There is one issue that I would like to raise also, which I have been very interested in recent times. And it deals with the issue that um, we as social scientists, we often do not take so much into account what are the environmental conditions where extraction happens, where where all kind of production happens. And... I think recently we have been vacant for this this matter that especially if we are speaking about environmental social science, how can we totally forget the, the, the dimension of environmental issues? I'm not promoting that we should become like biologists or ecologists, but to know like crucial issues of biophysical processes it it's it's so vital that you cannot understand the socio-political dynamics if you do not take into account those uh, i can give you some very simple issues for example concerning the oil extraction and if we think why those oil industries are so interested in getting the social license for operations and for for calming down the social movements, one very simple issue is that oil resources, they are geographically embedded. You cannot change them from one place to another. And to to extract oil... It demands so huge investments that you cannot just like leave one place where there are so many conflicts and go to another place. It's not easy. It, it's not going to happen easily. It's much easier to do it, for example, in the case of textile industry. And so uh, for that reason, they just try to calm down the, the, the protests because if they do not have the social license to operate, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> And uh, I think in, in all kind of uh, extraction issues, you you should also know what are the materi- what is the materiality of those resources and how this materiality interacts with the sociopolitical issues. I have been very interested in these issues recently. Definitely, and and actually, this kind of I think links into something that I've been kind of curious about, um, especially I mean, just kind of like speaking in broad strokes because uh, of course, like you know confidentiality with people you're working with and everything like that. But um, I'm really interested to hear more about your experience, um, especially Nicaragua, since you said you had the, you know, 1997, 2007, 2017, working in the same area, seeing how this is like interacting with people on the ground there. 
so I mean, like, how how have you been seeing this play out, having been able to go back and see the same place again and again? Yes, uh, but also what makes it interesting is also that this place it's very volatile, it's very mobile. People are coming and going. It's not easy to find out those those people. And as I said, it's also very violent. So some of my inf- informants have been assaulted. And there are all kind of traumatic situations. So in a certain sense, although this might sound a little bit like ironic, but it's also more fascinating to study those kind of fluid, mobile uh, spaces than than something where everything is so stable and people stay for a long time. <laughs> but uh, but this is the characteristic, typical uh, situation of frontiers. When you're on the ground in these frontier areas, um, how are you perceived? Well, um, in 95, 96, when I was there, and those people who didn't know me, they immediately thought that I'm a human rights activist. They never thought I'm a tourist. There were almost no tourists, and if they... I mean, they could quickly recognize that I'm not a tourist. There wasn't so many researchers. There were not so many researchers either. They Perhaps they thought sometimes that I might be a, a, a person working in a development project. But, but most of them thought that I'm a human rights activist or advocator. And that was not a very good role because, you know, after the civil war, it was very divided divided between Contras and Exandinistas, Ex-Contras and Exandinistas. And whenever there was a human rights conflict, they wanted to have like representatives from both sides. So it was a very tense kind of situation. And uh, I, I definitely didn't want people to think that I'm, I'm working for human rights issues. <laughs> but that was the role that they gave me all the t- uh, if they didn't know me. Later on, when I have been there, I have had to take care of like preventive strategies so that people do not, people understand that I'm, I'm, I'm doing research and not, and, and I'm not a journalist, for example, because, um, as the place is quite violent, so um, many instances wouldn't like that the reporters go and, and make sensation of, of, of the conflicts there. So in these kind of situations, this commodity frontier that you're on, is this kind of gross extractivism something that's new? or No, it's not new at all. I, I think we really have to take into account the, the history of extractivism, uh, not just in the place where I have been working, but it, uh, in most of the cases. Uh, so in the case of Nicaragua, uh, there has been extractivism for more than 100 years. Uh, just to give you some examples, there was a, a boom of rubber gathering. There was a boom of chicle. If you know what is chicle, I don't. What it's is that? The, it's the tree that that is used for chewing gum, like chicle. Like, like the name chicle comes there from there. Oh, well, really? that's, yes. that's what popped into my head, but I was like, no, that that'd be silly. To yeah, say. That's, what, that's, that's what, exactly. what popped into my head too. Yeah, so it's a tree gum. that oh. grows in in rain in the rainforest, and there was a boom of that. Then there was a boom of ricea. 
And Rhizia is a medicinal plant that is used. First, it was used as a natural product, and then they made a synthetic of it. Uh, it's used for vomiting if you have swallowed something that is poisonous. Uh, and they 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 sold those Rhizias to U.S. and European markets. And thereafter, there has been a boom of like uh, more more like conventional kind of products like uh, like. Uh, uh, cattle raising boom and now oil palm boom and fast growing tree boom. Uh, so there are like booms and booths that go go on uh, go on come and go. And this this is the case with Amazonia too. We all know that there has been different kind of ups and downs in the extractivism. So I think in most of those frontier areas, the idea is not even, even with companies, the idea is not to establish something which is very long term, but to extract profit quite quickly and to make those, like to find out new so-called natural resources that can be exploited and exploit them rapidly and then start a new one. I think history is very important to know. Of course, uh, what we can see is, for example, in the case of Nicaragua or other places too, that earlier times they were more like uh, resource frontiers. Now they are more like commodity frontiers, where you produce commodities for globalizing markets in a in a very fast phase and 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 with big quantities. So. So what is the difference between like a resource frontier versus a commodity frontier uh, for, our, for our listeners at home? Uh, a resource frontier is more like a place, often it is, it is a so-called peripheric place, where there is no clear land ownership or resource ownership. They are often considered as un, unused lands that have to be cut down for agriculture or res, that have to be... Uh, intensively extracted for uh, um, for resources, and um, those resource frontiers. There, the main idea is still like land appropriation or resource appropriation and land speculation. But there are no clear links yet for commodity markets. Because those uh, frontier areas, they do not often have like road connections, infrastructure for 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 marketizing, and then uh, little by little, there is a process of commoditizing resource frontier, which turns thereafter to commodity frontier, where the main idea is to produce commodities for for global markets or for national markets, but. Uh, for profit making, uh, often those frontiers may also be overlapping, so it's not so clear cut the distinction. Uh, and there might be commodity markets on, also in the places where there is no deforestation going on. For example, in the case of uh, extensive uh, mineral extraction or oil ex- extraction, but still it's a commodity frontier. 
That's really interesting. I have to admit that um, I hadn't necessarily thought about the differences between those types of frontiers quite so specifically. So would you say that where you've been in Nicaragua, you you say that at this moment, that's very much a commodity frontier? Uh, it depends because it's a huge area. There are parts which are like commodity frontiers. Then there is a commoditizing frontier area. And within that protected area, I would say that there it's still a resource frontier. Interesting. And what about in the um, oil extraction in Mexico? What type of frontier would you say you're on there? I would say it's a commodity frontier. Yeah. Uh, like a, the company that is carrying out most of the extraction, it's the 11th biggest oil industry in the world and, and third biggest exporter of oil to the United States. So it's a huge conglomerate. <laughs> Uh, I would like to say also that developing a m more conceptual kind of framework for these differences between uh, resource frontier and commodity frontier and so on, we have been doing it together with Markus Kröger. So it's not not just my ideas, it's, it's uh, us jointly making this kind of contribution. Which I am sure, dear listeners, that you will be able to hear Marcus in an upcoming episode. One thing that we always like to uh, to ask before we wrap up, um, for our listeners out there who are really interested, the average person on the street, uh, if they want to do something, if they want to find out more information, if they want to become active, like with some sort of organizations or, or anything like that, is there some way that they can uh, to learn more and do something about this? Yes, they can always contact me. Uh, I can send them some publications that I do have, but I can also send them publications of other people. And I can also contact them with the organizations who are working in the, in those areas and who are doing more like policy oriented work or, or practical oriented work, trying to help the smallholders. Uh, for example, with the case of, um, of cacao production or protection of the biological reserve and the, the species there. Or, so I have quite good networks uh, in both countries and I can, I can give them, uh, like ideas what they can do if they want to get in, involved. And are there any um, resources that we can share in the show notes, for example, articles that you've published on the subject that we can link up to? Yes, you can You can link them up. And I also want to emphasize that nowadays at the University of Helsinki, we have the, the policy of open access articles. So most of my articles, they, they are open access. So uh, whomever can find them, for example, through Google without having to pay for those articles. And don't you worry, dear listeners, because we're going to make sure to uh, link up a veritable library of articles that Anya has authored and co-authored over the years that will give you a little bit more insight into this context that we've been speaking about today. So definitely check the show notes, because if you want to do some really stimulating academic reading about resource frontiers and commodity frontiers in Nicaragua and Mexico, we're going to have some articles down there for you. 
thank you so much for joining us today and having this conversation with us. We went to a lot of different places. We talked about resources, commodities, frontiers, food, oil, fisheries. Oh, there was a lot going on. Um, but we really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us about this uh, really amazing body of empirical work that you've done in these spaces. Yeah, it was. I, I really appreciated like getting that firsthand knowledge and, and feeling uh, that, that you were able to bring with these different areas and, and different aspects. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Anya Nugren for coming on and sharing some of her great knowledge, stories, and experience with us. Please join us next month when we are excited to welcome Professor Nick Coldry and Professor Ulysses Mejias from London School of Economics and State University of New York at Oswego, respectively. They are the authors of The Costs of Connection, and we're going to have a great conversation looking at data colonialism, data extractivism, and the insidious ways that extractivism is seeping into our daily lives. And we ourselves have become a resource for these companies. Thank you so much again for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating. Coming to you from the beautiful late summer of Helsinki, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sofia Hagelani-Albov, stay safe. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>